Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2018 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 26th and 27th of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. There are times for all filmmakers where there is no clear path ahead. Lynette Walworth and David Lowry share insights from their filmmaking journeys with Brita McVeigh. They explore the roadblocks they faced, the deviations from the path, and ultimately the way through in this intimate and enlightening conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this conversation that we're going to have together. Um, or that we're going to have together with you. Um, I'm not going to go into a lengthy introduction of these two um, prolific and talented um, filmmakers, but we, I, I will say that um, I have on the stage with me Lynette Woolworth, who um, at the age of seven used to go and... Um, follow her grandmother when she was on holiday to the Timworth Cinema, where she was a cleaner. And that meant that Lynette only ever saw the end of films when she was seven. <laughs> and that a seminal, and that it has turned out to be a gift, and that a seminal moment for her was seeing the end of 2001 with no context. <laughs> yeah. And that I have David Lowry here on the stage, who at the age of seven asked his mother, how did Star Wars get made? And she gave him a book on, or started to explain to him what independent filmmaking was. And that that got in bone deep. And it's actually, you're quite fiercely independent. So that was also seminal. Star Wars itself was seminal for you, wasn't it? It was, but also 2001, that's, that's the first movie I saw, uh, well, not the first movie, but I didn't see the beginning of it, so I saw also the, it's very, same same deal, same deal, yeah. Really? Like, prior to that, like, my grandparents had to tape it off television, and they figured the first part of the movie would be boring for me, so they only showed me the second half. (laughs) There you go. So there's something there for all of you. Yes. That is a separate, and I'm not joking, but that actually is a separate storytelling workshop that we could have. <laughs> mm, mm. We really could. Okay, so we are here to talk about the, I think it's described as the windy road, and um, in a way I think what we're really going to be talking about is strength and how you come to it in different ways, or, or knowledge, learning. That's really what we're talking about, learning, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we've got, we've, we've come prepared a little bit, and we have um, a couple of images to springboard us off into some stories. So I think what we'll do is we'll start with, Lynette's got an image that would be great to put up on this beautiful. And I wonder, Lynette, if you could just um, place us here with what you were bringing to this moment and why you were here. So this is... The first trip I went on to with the Madu women from remote Western Australia. So this is in near a place called Wandili. And uh, the women asked me to come and film them when they went on a hunting trip. We arrived and uh, they did their traditional uh, burning practices as land management. So the night before they'd burnt all of this spinifex. And then the next day they were going out hunting in it. Um, if you can imagine, this is Nanjabai. She picked up her, uh, her crowbar, which she uses to feel for the goannas that are in the land, and then she's marching out there. You can see she's 
That's her. She's got a little bag to hold the goannas and she's got her stick. And I hurriedly picked up my camera and I'm running after her. And she's like marching about and looking for goanna. She just found a goanna and she, that was in her bag. And onward she's going and I'm traipsing after her very awkwardly with my camera trying to keep up. And she turned to me shortly after this and she said, go back. And I said, do you need something? Do I have to go and get you something? Uh, I'm trying to understand this very distinct instruction. She just said, no, go back. So I went back. I was despondent. I thought maybe she didn't want me filming her. I didn't understand. Um, She hadn't looked at me the whole time. She was just letting me film her. You must have thought she didn't want you to film I thought she didn't want me to film. And later that night we were sitting around the campfires and the women said, Nanjabai said you were out with her and you forgot your water bottle. And she was right. But she didn't look at me. She'd heard my breathing and that I wasn't drinking. And without explaining any of it, she just said, go back. She was caring about my dehydration. I wasn't because we get obsessed. We're focused on the frame and I was focused on the frame and she was focused on many things, including my own health and safety. So that's why I love that picture. But you can put that meaning around that now. But when you're around the campfire, what was the, um, what was the I mean, the process, was it that quick at the time? For you? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing of the learning with these women. Mm. Often they let me do things that were stupid in order that I could learn that they were stupid. But this was not one of those things. Another time I walked, I, I'm telling you all this in confidence. I, <laughs> I should have said actually, Karen of Silence. <laughs> I walked, I walked, they were watching me, they were talking, they were, talk, they were having a very sad conversation. They were sitting on the ground, they were, they were talking about something very, very sad that, was, that we were filming. And um, I walked over to get something. I'd asked them if they wanted me to film this conversation, they didn't. It was about the Canning Stock route, it was a bad story. They just wanted to be sitting, talking about it. And I walked over to get something, they watched me, then I came back and they said, why did you walk through the fire coals? So they didn't stop me walking through the fire coals, but I had not noted where someone had earlier at some point lit a fire and put it out. So for the rest of this trip, I'm running around with melted heels that I had to duct tape together with silver duct tape because I'd melted my feet, my shoes in the cold. <laughs> but that was the learning. But what I'm hearing also is that it's um, these are stories about rushing, yes, and looking at and not bringing yourself properly into it has it it sounds like a almost like a pace like a pace of being in the work so until I slow down until I slow down and then by the time I'm slowed down I have to leave and then when I return to my world I'm completely out of step with it because you've slowed so much yeah and the first time that happened to me after going to um, meet with the Marilinga, uh, with, the, with the Anangu people who were living at Oak Valley who'd been moved off their land for those nuclear tests. This is like really early 2002. 
Um, so that's the first time I entered uh, a remote Indigenous community, Australian Indigenous community. Someone said to me, be very careful when you return. And luckily they said that to me because I was in Adelaide, actually. I'd flown back into Adelaide and it was the day after returning and I was walking across the road and I nearly got hit by a truck because I, I was out of pace. I was not in the pace of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about moving in and out of... The work. Yeah, and moving in and out of different worlds. So it's about how you are in the threshold of, of entering. And what's sad and then yeah. is to feel how... What's sad for me, uh, every time I return from being with the Madhu, I cry for about three days. Mm. I, I just cry for about three in, inexplicably different moments because I feel myself shifting back into a pace that is is not communal, mm. um, where people are not aware if I'm stepping into a fire or if I don't have a water bottle, if I'm not looking after my body, mm. where I'm just navigating everything on my own. Again, without this context of a kind of sensibility of communal care. But um, that's my life. So I then I slip back into it, then I stop crying and on I go. What's so interesting to me is you're talking about something that may seem incredibly specific but that you started nodding when um, Lynette was talking about coming back to her life. So I wonder if, in a way, the model is... um, I don't mean to describe your life as a model, but that rhythm and that shape of entering work and leaving work is true no matter what the process. It has different... Were you aware that you did that nodding? <laughs> no? Me? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> you did went down to your body and you're like this. That's me contemplatively saying, like, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but also David's image, yes. So I picked this image because it represents the most recent low point in my filmmaking career. <laughs> and it's an image of Tom Waits in the movie I just finished, The Old Man, The Gun, and Tom Waits is a hero of mine. And I was so... Any Tom Waits fans? Yeah, everybody. And I was just so excited to have him in this movie. And we had been shooting for a bit with him at this point. And this is a scene where he and Danny Glover and Robert Redford are just sitting around chit-chatting and counting money. And just, it's a, it was a chance for Tom Waits to just get to, you know, talk, which is a delightful thing if, He's, a, he's an amazing speaker, as we all know. And so we'd shot the wide shot of this scene, and we'd shot some of Robert Redford's close-ups, and then we get around to Tom. And so finally we're featuring him, and we get it all set up, and I'm sitting there on the floor, because I always sit on the floor when I'm directing, just crouched over a little monitor near the camera. And everyone's like, the assistant director's like, okay, are we ready to go? And I'm just like frozen, and I can't. I can't say, like, let's do this. Let's start shooting. I'm just, like, got things racing through my mind. And what it was was I just was seeing him, and this sounds ridiculous to say it now, but I hated his shirt. <laughs> and I just was, like, it's, like, this yeah. black shirt with, like, phases of the moon on it. Yeah. And somehow it had slipped in, and because we'd been doing wide shots and I hadn't really paid attention to it all, so we're getting to his close-up. And I just felt, A, I didn't like it, and B, I felt... I could sense that he didn't like it, and I also felt like I was screwing up this chance to work with a hero of mine, and I was not putting him in his, 
best form, and I was just, I, I just messed up. And I just didn't know what to do. I was like completely paralyzed by this ridiculous moon face shirt. <laughs> and, and I was racing through my head, and I, just, I, mean, and I was like, can we reshoot? I was doing the calculations. Can we reshoot this whole scene? Like, can we go find a new costume? And I started thinking about all the other costumes we'd had him in in the film. I was like, I think we, I think we've been on the wrong page from the beginning. And I instantly started thinking of all these things he should have been wearing through the whole film. And I just felt like I had, you know, squandered my opportunity to give Tom Waits a really great role in this film and to make my film better by having him in it. And this was probably week five of a seven-week shoot, and it was the first time where I just lost my footing completely. And we were shooting in this house where this is scene takes place for two or three days, and like that entire period was just like miserable because of this shirt. And <laughs> I just I felt like I completely screwed up the movie, and I really lost my way. And, it, and like people would, it's weird how a little thing like that can suddenly throw you so asunder that you. When someone comes and asks me, what, so what are we going to shoot after lunch? I'm like, I, I honestly don't know. Like, I was just off course so thoroughly. And a little tiny thing like that can throw it off. And, and the thing that is weird is that in the movie, you'd never notice it. Like, the scene goes by, it cuts to him a few times, you never notice it. But for that, you know, week of shooting, and, and for the week after, even once we got to post-production, the movie was no longer about... Robert Redford robbing banks and having a romance with Sissy Spacek and all these other things, it was about this horrible shirt. And it just, that's like, that loomed large in my mind. And, and I hung all of my own senses of shortcoming and, and fear all just got attached to that. And I just, it became a source of deep loathing. And then, and I did have like, I went and, we, and Tom, Tom didn't like it either. Like we had a conversation afterwards about his wardrobe and how we needed to fix it. And we we tried out different things afterwards, but I just felt like I just dropped the ball so hardcore. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, the movie was going great. Like, everything was going well, and we got to this week, and it just, like, for that, from that week forward, like, it was like I was barely hanging on for the rest of the production. And it's so weird. For the rest of the production? It, it was, was like, like another two weeks or so. Right, so it's, two and a half it's weeks. not like coming out of that is, you've got a process for coming out of it? I mean, I wish I could have just reshot the whole scene. That probably would have helped, but we didn't have the time or mm-hmm. the means to do that. And... And so then, and so I guess the reason I like this is because every movie has a shirt like that. And it might not be a shirt, it might be something completely different, but every movie has a choice that turns out to be the wrong one, and you have to figure out how to deal with it. And luckily with this one, it was just, there's three other people in the scene. I could edit the scene in a way that makes it easy to just pull attention away from it. Not that anyone would ever notice it in the first place, Mm. but... um, it just laid bare all of the things that I had had confidence in that had, and had pushed through, that, but that mm. all of a sudden were revealing themselves as maybe questionable choices. Mm. And I just all of a sudden started to question myself on everything mm. and pick apart every choice I'd made. And I lost all of my confidence from that point forward. And that happens in every movie. It always happens at some point. And the way I work through it at this point is just knowing that it's going to happen. Like, I just know mm. it's going to happen. And at some point, everything's going to get terrible and miserable. <laughs> and... And that I just have to keep doing what I'm doing. And, and that there'll be some way to reconcile this grievous error later on. And, of course, they're never that grievous. Mm. They're never that terrible. And I know that, too. But that doesn't mitigate the fact that when you're there in the moment, you just feel like you have royally screwed up in a way that no one will ever forgive you for. My way of describing that is that you just can't avoid the fact that 
doubt's going to come and get you at some point. Def- I mean, I, mean that- I don't know if that's true for everyone, but it's certainly yeah. true for me. And it, I, mm. I try to approach it from the mindset of if you're not come comfortable. Well, yeah. yeah, if you're not comfortable, <laughs> then you're probably doing something right. You know, like the, the idea that if you're operating in a, in a zone where you're afraid, there's like a fine line where that fear can actually motivate you to do things better. And then there's the, ver- the, the flip side of that, which is where fear just paralyzes you and you stop being bold. Mm-hmm. And you have to walk that line. It's, very, it's a very treacherous line, but it's one that I feel like is a good place to exist creatively, but it's certainly not fun. No, it's interesting that you describe it as a line because I think, was it yesterday that you said, Lynette, that you walk and you were saying it about the particular technology that you work with, that you're walking what feels like a strange and precarious path with your work. Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. what David's saying, have, does that, you relate to that? And I do, I mean, around, you know, sh- shooting those moments where you realise, because the pressure is on that moment. You can't go back, you can never go back and get that moment again. I mean, well... I guess you could, you could try and reshoot, but often you, you yeah, it's just that. You kind of have to assume that you're not going to yeah. get to. So yeah. there's that. I mean, the, pres- the thing of that, the, I really understand that feeling that the, the pressure for you to not miss that moment mm. is like this. It's like you pass through mm. and you can't, I can't go back to this. I'm passing through. Mm. Um, and, and things will never be exactly the same again. So actually you can never get that moment again. Mm. You can get a different moment, but not that moment. Um, my pressure points are often really heavily in the post-production because I'm working with new technologies. Mm. And there's always this thing around what should be possible and what's actually possible. And I, the way I, the way my mental state is, I'm in a maze. If you can imagine my post-production for, say, Awavana, which is a 17-minute, you know, experience, was a three months um, in an edit with three different sorts of edit stages from traditional kind of filmic edit then into a unity build and editing then everything again in order to make it function. And for me, my mind is in a maze. I know where I want to get and that's the centre of the work, the core of the work. I have to get to the core. But I'm in a technological maze. So I really know I need this thing to happen but then I might hit a technological kind of blockage because the technology just can't do the thing that I want it to do. So then either I keep pushing or when it gets really painful, I have to make a leap. And those are the moments I love and hate because (laughs) I actually have to get stuck before I can make the leap. So I have to go in the maze and go, try this way, no. Try this way, no. Try this way, no. Try this way, no. And then when I have done that and I've banged my head against something enough in terms of where I'm trying to get and when I know, I know, okay, in, in myself let it go and leap and then I will find a solution that is what the work needs but I have to get to the pain point um, before my mind will go there. So, and the technology has to defeat me, defeat me, defeat me and then I leap 
and then I find a solution. Have you, you may not, have you got an example of that from Awavana, of that particular? So there's a transitions from, say, live action shoot, camera shoot into into point cloud data. So they're two very different forms of data and how you merge them together is really difficult and you can't do normal filmic transitions between those. And and so I was like, okay, so do I have to divide these? And, you, you know, I'm battling with um, how I'm going to bring them both in. And I was saying to my editor in the Unity build, so this is basically the second edit process, it's like it has to <laughs> enfold you. We have to bring everyone back in and, and you have to move from this state and be enfolded. I said, it's like a ball. It's got to be like a ball. And actually and physically he made a video disc, a ball, that appears in this forest and came towards you. So it come, So if you see a wavana, you'll see this moment that was defeating me <laughs> where you're in this beautiful ethereal forest. I have to pull you out of this ethereal forest in a trance state and pull you back into live action. How am I going to do that? And so then he made me this ball and this video ball appears in the distance and then it comes towards you and then it enfolds you exactly as I described. But I described it in a state of complete frustration. And then he made it. And that's in the work. I've got a um, quote here that you said, David, yesterday, which is a kind of, it's circling the same thing and what you've just said in a way, but I'm, I'm wondering if you've got a good example for this, which is that I have to learn the same lesson on every movie. I run away from my gut, things start falling apart, and I have to learn to trust my instincts. I mean, it's certainly true. Um, I, on on a ghost story, that one was is a little bit more black and white with that one because there were no no one was giving me notes because there was no there were no producers who like other than my friends there were no financiers on that movie there was no one to like run interference other than myself and so I was constantly second guessing myself and my reaction to everything that was going wrong on that movie, which wasn't that much, because we were just, by design, fumbling blindly towards a, pro- a finished product with that movie. But I just kept thinking, um, we got to stop. We got to pull the plug. This movie's, oh, <laughs> this movie's yeah. not working. It's we just so need to... We need to... Yeah. Um, because you had nowhere to hide. You couldn't... There was I, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was no... There was no like, often, when you're making a film, and someone comes up to you and says wouldn't it be great if this happened? There's a great deal of... um, It's almost like if you were to take that note, there's like a moment of uh, great peace that can descend upon you because you're relinquishing your own control for a moment. And that's a great feeling to like say, this person knows better than I do. I'm just going to do what they tell me to do. And... What a, I mean, you just feel all of a sudden like so relaxed <laughs> because, and, and, and then of course that suggestion very often is incorrect and you are kicking yourself for it later. But in the moment, it's very satisfying to just give in to that. And even if you know that it's going to do something for your project that is not correct, you know, like on, when I made this movie, Ain't Them Body Saints, there were lots of people on that movie that were suggesting I do things in different ways. Mm-hmm. And there was this 
you know, possibility in my head of like, what if I just let one of them direct the movie? And that was like, great. I was like, oh, I won't have to worry about it anymore. Like, I can just like, I can just, I'll, I'll just let them run the show. And, Did you do and the, the, movie will be as, the movie won't be as good, but I won't have to worry about it. And <laughs> of course, I'm not going to do that. But there is like this tantalizing like prospect of like, because when you're directing, like everything's on you. You know, you, you're collaborating with everybody, but ultimately everyone looks to you to make the final decisions. And with a ghost story, so there was a ghost story, there was nobody to give me notes. There was nobody to give me those nefarious suggestions. And, and so <laughs> the, the, the little pressure valve was, I should just quit. We should just, we should just cancel the movie. And I, um, of course, was not going to do that. But I definitely would call Toby, my, one of my producing partners, in, in the evenings and be like, I'm like, tell me that this is a terrible idea. Tell me that we are, like, just please give me permission to pull the plug on this because... I can't do it myself. And he's like, no, there's something here. Like, we're doing something. And I knew that, but I just needed to hear it from somebody else. You know, I needed, like, one other person to, like, echo what my gut was telling me so that I wouldn't do what the fear was compelling me to do, which was to, to quit. And, and, you know, thank goodness I uh, didn't do that because, of course, like, that, I was in the right state of fear. I was in the right state of not knowing what I was doing. Like, that was a very excruciating but... Mm. important movie to make because mm. I was like figuring out exactly how I like to make movies in a, in a very profound and immediate way and, in, and that discomfort was important but had I run away from it um, I would have been running away from my gut instinct which my gut instinct was saying like there is something there there's something there every day you're getting a little something that is going to accumulate uh, th- these little somethings are all going to accumulate into something that is worthwhile, that is what you were after from the get-go, even though you couldn't put a name on that or define it for everybody. You knew there was something worth pursuing in this film, and you are getting it in spite of the fact that there's so much other stuff that's happening that makes you feel like you're, you're failing. Did it, after doing Old Man and the Gun next, and, and having all the noise stripped away when you're doing a ghost story, as you say, just you hearing... Yeah hearing your internal narrative more noisily than normal because there's less uh, distractions, I yeah. guess. Um, did that equip you in a different way to meet yourself when you were in the next film? It, it did, yeah. Mm. I mean, it certainly didn't help with that shirt, but um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the Old Man and the Gun had a lot of people who were producing it. There was a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but they all trusted me. Like, uh, the, the one benefit of having made a number of movies at this point is that because none of them are terrible, you know, whether, whether you like them or not, none of them are, like, objectively terrible movies, um, people trust me a little bit more. And so when I say, you know, I'm not going to do something, that's usually the end of the conversation. And, mm. and that is a good place to be in because I can shut things down a little more quickly if there's, like, too much noise in the room. And there were instances... I mean, I provide plenty of noise of my own. Like, obviously, I don't yeah, need yeah. all the noise from anyone else. And, and there were instances on the set where I was making changes. Like, I, as I talked about yesterday, I rewrite as I go. And sometimes that really freaks people out. And that's within reason. Like, when you sign on to make a movie and you've got a script and then the director is rewriting that script and suddenly a big, important scene is no longer important you wonder, like, does this director really know what they're doing here? Are they making the right choice? Because they're not, they don't have the luxury of being in my head and seeing it come together the way I'm seeing it. 
So there's lots of people raising their hands in alarm, saying, uh, what about that stuff we were supposed to shoot today? Are we still doing that? Like, why aren't we doing that? Are you making the right choice? And I'm at a point now where I feel comfortable saying, I'm pretty sure I'm making the right choice, and we can talk about it. We can spend as much time talking about it as you want, but that's not going to change what I'm intending to do today. Mm-hmm. And so then you do wind up having like long conversations and meetings and panic phone calls, and the answer at the end of the day is always the same, which is like, I'm just doing what I feel is right, and you guys hired me to make this movie and write it and to direct it because you trust me, so like, keep trusting me. And, and that is a great place to be in now, where I'm just like, rather than like saying, okay, I, I guess I'll do it that way too, or we'll shoot two versions of it, or like trying to please everybody, I'm much more concerned with selfishly, but appropriately so, pleasing myself. And that's, that's an important place to be. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I was going to ask you both, actually, what your, what your feelings are about the word compromise. You know, like a, a, what a younger version of you might have thought of as compromise and what you see as compromise. Now, and the reason I ask it is because I think that we're all different and people bring different meanings to what it is to have a vision and what it is to compromise on the vision. And some see compromise as a strength and some see sticking to your vision rigidly as a strength. And I'm just wondering how you both feel about... I mean, they're just words, vision and compromise, but I'm interested in um, where you think you may have been at with that in an earlier stage, where you're at with that now. Uh, I mean, it's not a word I... It's not in my vocabulary. Yeah. That's, and is... And so do you speak in terms of, um, not an opposite, but do you speak in terms of a vision at all? So, um, I mean, my process is like tracking something. You know, I'm tracking something that my my sense is, you know, it's not feature fiction. It's mm. a, you know, even with long-form documentary, it's still... Uh, trying to reveal something that I think... I have a feeling of this thing that wants to get made Mm. and I'm trying to find it. So in that sense, how can I compromise? I'm just looking for that thing and I'm trying to move all the weeds away or I'm trying to eradicate everything that doesn't just lift that up. So that's my goal and that's my process Mm. And the only... Um, and it's not just you either, is it? Like you're inviting people on who are also tracking with you? I'm, I'm inviting people on that journey with me, but I don't think... I think my responsibility is to know that one thing mm. and no one else can answer that question. That's my sensation. Mm. Um, but I've come from a tradition of... Uh, making artworks, mm. and it's a very isolating experience. It's a it's a more isolated world, and and frequently I would not show anyone a work until it was done, except the maybe one or two people who are working on that with me. Mm. Even my producers, I never used to show them the work <laughs> until it was done. I would show what was that the about? producers of my inst- of video installations my work when I was installing them. Mm. Um, why so I'm in a vacuum of, <laughs> of uh, I mean, I, I would create a very intense uh, and protected vacuum. Mm. Well, because I, 
Uh, and the first time I had to work with the, within the film industry where people are wanting to be in the room and investors are wanting to be in the room and comment on the work, I was horrified, <laughs> like horrified. I was like, why are these people here and why are they saying anything <laughs> about my work <laughs> because I haven't finished it yet? <laughs> film is very different to the art world. And, you know, wonderful Kath Shelper, uh, you know, um, had to kind of deal with my uh, grievances. Kath Shelper was the producer on Lynette's. Yeah, because, um, like, I didn't. Or people wanting to be in the room when, I'm, when I was editing or anyone. I couldn't, so my, I couldn't think at first. For a long time I couldn't even think with other people in the room. I couldn't think because my, my thinking had developed in isolation. And if someone was to say something in the room, that would completely uh, impact my ability to say the next thing that I needed to say. I'm still incredibly offensive, I would say, even currently to current producers who want <laughs> to be in the room with me when I'm doing anything. I've gotten That's... very good at just, like, holding my hand up. Like, people start talking, just like... Okay, so I need to learn those gestures, but I, I just for now, I'm like, I'm just like, oh no, you know, it's just me and this person right now, and then afterwards it can be me and that person, and, but, yeah, uh, I mean, that's so, I, I mean, I don't, that doesn't answer your question about No, no, compromise. it does, it does, it just takes it into an area that's true for you, which is great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost exactly the same for me, because I, I don't. When I make a movie, I'm after something intangible, and I don't know exactly what it is, and it's never a story. The stories are never why I'm making the movie, and it's, I'm, we'll describe it as a feeling or a tone or a texture or a combination of those things, and it's always just like kind of shimmering out there in the, in the distance, and I'm just reaching for it and like working my way towards that, and every decision I make is hopefully getting me a little closer to whatever that intangible, indescribable thing is. And, and, of course, there is a story and there's all these other elements that I'm trying to service as well, but ultimately it's something intangible that I'm reaching for and it's very liquidy and it, it's hard to grab hold of, but when you get it, you know you've got it. And so by virtue of that, I also don't really think about compromise, although I have compromised in the past, and the compromises come when you stop reaching for that, when you just fall short of it yeah. or when you... You know, you're on set and you're, you know, straining for whatever it is that, whatever that intangible thing is. And, and you don't, you know you're not there yet, but you also know that it's getting late and that people are tired. And, and so you say, you know what, let's just, it's good enough, let's just call it a day and go home. And that's a compromise that I've made before. And I try, I, I don't want to ever do that again, but I've done it. Another one would be if I set aside whatever that intangible thing is for someone else's definition of what they think I'm making, mm. which is a version of like listening to someone say, I know you thought this movie was, you know, one thing, but have you considered making it this also? Mm. And if I'm like, I guess, yeah, let's try that. That's a compromise because all of a sudden I'm like setting aside whatever it is that I'm after that I believe is something truth, truthful. Mm. And, and, and even if I can't define it, I, I, believe that it's what will make this thing great and settling for something lesser. And that's not to say that people are just bringing me lesser ideas. They just have a different idea. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to service that idea because I'm not them. Yeah. They, are, they are putting on a little bit 
of their own director hat in that moment because they doubt me or they just have their own ideas of what things are. And I, I feel like that's only really happened to me on one movie. And as a result, that movie to me is like, it's hard for me to watch because I see all of those compromises in it. But it's useful for me to have made all those compromises because now I'm able to, as I said, with like the movie that I'm making now, just like, like no, I'm not doing that. You know, my, I, I shut it down. And I'm not going to say that that will never happen again. Like movies are so rickety in terms of like it's like building a roller coaster that's already you know left the track and there's ways in which on any movie I make I might have to do that again I, I can see that happening on the movies I'm making now like I just I'm very aware of it but you also learn how to pick your battles and learn like if you need to compromise somewhere to gain something sometimes it's the right thing to do so it's but I don't you know I I, I never do it out of weakness anymore because I've learned that that is just a long, a, a quick path to long sleepless nights where you just regret all the things you, you did that you shouldn't have done. I think it's also what both of you are saying is if I imagine this... I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I imagine this happening and what you're talking about, I'm doing this thing here. Mm. There's something I think that gets learned about not needing to be socially acceptable in those mm. moments to protect the depth of your concentration, isn't it? And I think that may be different for everybody as to how they come to that. Whereas, you know, yeah, okay, sure, it's, it's kind of still maintaining a relationship. I could try that. It's like seemingly open. Whereas in actual fact, sometimes this, <laughs> this gesture, which we're now going to all use, this is about maintaining your own openness. And on your terms, is that a way, Selena? I can tell you've got. Well, I think. Well, here's an example that I think of. Um, you know, Alice Walker, who wrote mm-hmm. *Color Purple*. I listened to her give a, um, a a writer's talk once when she was talking about writing *A Color Purple*, and she said, "I think that she had to move house three times." So, this is a version, I think of this. So she started writing a colour purple and you can imagine, so say you're, 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 you're wanting to, to write this but you have family, you have commitments, you have people in your life, you have all these things but the characters in a colour purple, CC, those people, she said they were so quiet and so frail and so scared that she couldn't hear them properly. So then she moved to another location where, which was out of the city and more quiet, but it still was too noisy for these characters to be comfortable. And finally, she moved to a place where she, it sounded like she had like a little farmhouse and all of this space around her and no other houses it could be seen and maybe horses in the distance. That's what I pictured in my head as she talked. But in that place, those, com- those characters would all speak. And she stayed in that place until she finished the book. And then she talked about when the ending, she wrote the ending of A Colour Purple, how she put her head down and she cried because she knew then her conversation with those characters was done. But she had changed physically the location where she lived in order to honour that relationship. So we're talking about, in our own strange ways, a version with something so ethereal that you can't even name it. But for that moment, that's your relationship to protect. And while you're protecting that relationship, 
all the others, because I'm not saying, I mean, I have amazing producers, I have incredible support around me and wonderful people. I'm not saying anything, I'm make, not making any comment about those people. I'm talking about the primary relationship in that moment is to something unseen that doesn't yet exist. What do you, um, and this question may generate an opposite, actually, but what do you both use now that you've had as much and very different experience as you've had in completing projects and moving through the whole shape of imagining, kind of giving birth to it with others and then sending it out into the world? What do you know that you now need in your process to keep yourself steady, to keep yourself focused, no matter how idiosyncratic, what do you know that the ingredients are that you need around you? I mean, a lot of it, I would say, is for me is just, I don't even think about it anymore, but just creating an environment that I will flourish in, and that involves the people that I work with. Yeah. It involves the tenor on the set, the attitude, the feeling on that. And what is that? Um, just calm and open. Yeah. Like, just there's, there's never... So gentleness? It's very gentle. There's no... I don't really... I'm not interested in egos. Yeah. And, I'm, and if someone yells, they're out of there. Like, yeah. there's, it's, it's very... It's just about that, that, that feeling, that vibe. And, and a lot of that just comes from the people you work with. Yeah. And the reason I work with the same people repeatedly is because I know that we'll have that. And I know that we'll all be in, you know, a, a very open and very inquisitive and curious space together. And, and we'll all be pursuing that intangible thing together with the same spirit of, of gentle inquiry. And, and that's, it's great to not have to think about that, to just know that if I just, you know, make a movie with my friends that we're going to have that. Um, and then there's like other things like how many, like I need to wake up a certain number of hours before we start shooting so that I can be out of my bad morning mood and into a good mood. Yeah. And like I need to make sure I've got, you know, a cup of coffee and meditate and all the things I need to do at the beginning of the day before I can like actually talk to someone. Like those are all like the, the ritualistic side of things that are the things you learn over the course of making a movie that help you get to, you know, walking on set in a better place, you know. Um, but, but really it is just like creating that, that vibe and, and, and having that understanding that, you know, we all know how we create together and we all know what to expect. We all know to expect the unexpected and to know that things are going to change a lot and to, and to enjoy that. And as much as I keep talking about how miserable I get <laughs> and doubt and all of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, making movies is fun. And like, yeah. it's important to remember that as hard as it gets, mm. because it does get very hard, it's a luxury and we shouldn't ever take that for granted. Mm. We get to do this and that is a joy. And it's important to work with people who hang on to that joy. Um, uh, coffee is essential. And, I mean, good coffee, pro proper coffee. Yeah, artisanal yeah. cups of coffee. I mean, good coffee is probably at the top of the list. But, <laughs> but meditation is very or quiet for yeah. me. So, I, I mean, it's, I need, a, I need to, I mean, it sounds going to sound, again, I feel like I sound so rude, but I really need in the evenings to not talk. So after a 
day of uh, even well, so even in production or shooting or post production, I need to be able to be pretty well on my own or not talk. Because talking, because all that talking, all that external kind of this, what we're doing now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then you, you know, it's distracting from that inner state, which is also what we're talking about. Mm. That keeping that very clear, that core, that orientation, very clear. So I really, I mean, I'll have days where I'll say, oh, for these three days, um, before maybe going into um, a shoot, if I can. I will not talk to anyone. I will just need to protect that quiet. Sometimes it's impossible to do, but as much as possible I'll do that. And, you know, the other thing that's really basic, but that in the midst of those really difficult times uh, that we're talking about in post-production for me, that is when that will occur. Um, I need to know that someone, that people, that, you know, people who who care about me know that's I know they've got my back you know there's no one else who can quite do what I'm doing because that's my responsibility to do it but that I'm not but I'm able to say to someone this is so hard to someone this is so hard and I'm not quite sure of how I'm going to get there yet so I have to be able to say that to someone and I can't say that to the people I'm in the room with I have to say that to someone I'm not in the room with because I can't let those people know for this moment I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Mm. In a Wavana was really, really great because one of those nights, after a terrible, terrible day, I went uh, and I called Laura, the chief's wife, you know, I talked to her on Skype and I said, nothing's wrong, everything's good, <laughs> but it's really, really hard and um, everything's good. It's just really hard. And she, they sent a message into the community and like maybe 24 hours later I got a message. The shamans know and they're in ceremony for you. And I could go back into Technicolor Experience Centre in Culver City and say to the Unity developer and the editor and the animators, you know, and the people doing the models, the shamans are in ceremony for us right now. <laughs> and everyone lifted because there was a sense of a support around us. Uh, but, but for me, that's what I need, just to, to be able to whisper to someone my doubt because I can't say that to the people I'm working with. There's a really fine line between being in control enough to be a leader on set, because you have to be that, and also being open enough to acknowledge that you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Because you, a lot of times you don't. You have a plan, but at the same time, you're still you're looking for that intangible thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a degree of, of searching. And, and it's a, again, I keep talking about fine lines. That's another one where you just have to make sure everyone knows that, yes, you might not have all the answers, but at the same time, you still do know what you're doing doing yeah and it's a it's a delicate balance but a really important one yeah I mean because maybe it's not doubt maybe it's fear so I would say there's moments those moments what I'm probably describing is a kind of rush of fear Mm -hmm. that I don't like which will hit me when I'm away from everyone and I can't bring that fear into the room 
Mm. Maybe I can bring doubt into the room, but that's not a good fear. way to put it. Yeah, because yeah. fear is catching. It's catching. Yeah, because you can't set that alight in mm. that room, and if you do, everything will be destabilized. Mm. So you can go. I'm not quite sure. You, yeah, you can go. I'm not quite sure, but I can't go. I cannot. I can't bring that. I will be doing a disservice to everyone I'm working with if I bring my fear into the room. But I need to let someone know if I'm afraid. Yeah, because you can't pretend to yourself that you're not I having can't. it. And yeah. it's real. I mean, it's it's really sometimes incredibly precarious. Given what we're talking about, we know. I mean, it's not life or death, but it's just when you're in it. Um, it's Feels your, like it is. Your, your complete <laughs> focus. Yeah. We have a few minutes remaining, which I can offer to the room if there are questions that anybody has. Yes, immediately. In uh, Pink Dragon, mm-hmm. um, what was your moon shoot moment? Oh, yeah. oh, for that movie, a lot of it came in post-production. Just, you know, doing things with visual effects that just weren't you know, we'd shot things a certain way and then we'd do some visual effects work on it and it didn't quite add up the way I thought it was going to work and, and you have to figure out a way to, to fix that. That was one of them. I think um, it's weird because at this point I can talk about how hard that movie was to make but the rose-colored glasses have come on and I just look at all of the hardship. Mm. It's just beauty. I just have such fond memories of mm. the, <laughs> the hardest days. Yeah. Um, there was, there's, you know, a sequence at the beginning where... The lead character, Pete, is a little boy, and we had, you know, a young actor who was wonderful. He was four years old, but he could only work for two hours a day. And I remember, Mm. you know, this is the opening of the movie. It's very important. You've got to get that opening scene right. I talked about that a lot yesterday. It was really, that was a real challenge to to pull off because we just had so little time when you're working with an actor that young to Mm. to actually actually get them on camera. Mm. And, um, And I remember coming out of that sequence thinking, like, we don't have a beginning for this movie. Mm. But we did. We went and, you know, we, we, at, we shot some more stuff later on. We, we figured it out. But I remember that was like, I'm, I think it was on day 20 of the shoot. And it was, again, the first bad day where I just mm. came home and was just like, I dropped the ball on this one. This is not working at all. Mm. And, um, and, but we recovered, and I think the beginning is great. So luckily it yeah. came through. But post-production definitely had some, mm. some moments where I just was like, I might have made something that I'm afraid for people to see. But... It all worked out. Mm. Rose-colored glasses are on, mm-hmm. but even when they're off, I also am like, really, really happy with that movie. Mm. Yes, over here. Um, for you both, how much of your pre-production do you spend on technical preparation versus creative preparation? I don't really delineate between the two. Um, I love technical stuff. I love like figuring out what lenses we're going to shoot the movie on and what, you know, whether a shot needs to be a dolly shot or a steady cam shot or whether, you know, we can allocate the three technocrane days we can afford to this scene or that scene. That's all stuff that's really fun for me, but it's also just as creative as figuring out whether a line of dialogue is going to get cut to the heart of the matter more than a moment of silence. So I really, it, it all is a big congealed process for me of creativity. I think I'm a bit the same because I have to prepare the technology in in advance in order that I'm bringing the right equipment. And and I don't I don't work with dialogue, but I I have to know exactly what I want to shoot in order that technically I'm prepared. So on this latest work, 
you know, we had a whole series of different technologies in order to be able to capture things in various forms. That is a lot of pr preparation in order to find the right thing. We took um, a portable LiDAR scanner uh, into the Amazon. We took three canoe loads worth of gear, um, three different cameras and a LiDAR scanner in order to capture across the different um, scenes. So that took a lot of preparation. Um, but it's enjoyable preparation because it's going to give very, it gave very specific moments then that could be brought into the work uh, that otherwise I wouldn't have. So once I know exactly what the work needs to be, I have to find the technology to do it. Yes, in the middle. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't, again, with the one movie that I talked about that I feel like I've compromised on, that's one where I wish that I had done things differently. But for the most part, at this point, I feel like every revision, every step forward is clarifying for me what it is I'm after. And, and so they do get better. And I, like, I went through all the old drafts of The Old Man and the Gun. I was like, they're all good. They're all fine. And, you know, in preparation for that panel yesterday, but I know that I made ultimately the right version of it. And, um, and so it's actually very reassuring to me to be in that mindset where like I look at old drafts and I'm like, no, I, I made the right choice. I made the right decision. And that emboldens me in the future when I am on set saying like, this isn't right. Give me five minutes. I'm rewriting the scene to know that whatever I'm going to come up with is probably a stabbing a little closer at the heart of the matter. So we watched a ghost story in class last week um, at school. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and we thought it was, I thought it was a great film. Um, probably a lot of my friends and stuff didn't quite understand it. But um, <laughs> I wanted to ask, how do, do you think it relates to post-horror? And if so, why? That is a, that's a good question. I, it relates to, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone here knows the term post-horror, um, but it's like the genre of horror films that are being made now that are more artfully done. You know, we might include Hereditary this year or The Witch last year or It Follows as these films that deal with social ideas in, through horror films, which horror films have always done. I don't think a ghost story is post-horror, but it does have, it does employ the tropes of the genre enough to where if someone wants to include it amongst those films, it makes sense to me. But personally speaking, it doesn't quite fit. I would love to actually make a post-horror film or a horror film period because I love it. it's my favorite genre, but I have not done it yet, in my opinion. Sorry, I've just got to stop there. Is horror really your favorite genre? I'm all about, I love horror films. Oh, like, really? I love, I, I, I watch, <laughs> here's, here's me watching a horror film. I'm like this. But I, uh, 
So you I, like the physical feeling of watching? I can't I, even get in a house where a horror film. Oh, I was. I grew up being scared of everything. Like every movie terrified me, and so something about being terrified now, I guess, taps kind into some works. sort of childhood nostalgia. Can but you watch a horror films? No, I don't watch horror films. No, me either. No, that's so. I've got a son who can't watch any films, so mm-hmm. that's really interesting to me that that was your experience. I'm just going to keep an ear out as to whether he ends up getting into horror. Um, I wasn't planning on having that. <laughs> I would love. I would love to talk for another hour about horror films. Okay. I could talk about them all Let's day. Let's do that but, another time. Yeah. Um, No. <laughs> thank you. And thank you. <laughs> I, I, you know, Britta asked us for some photographs. She didn't not put one of my photographs up there. My photograph was of the dog I don't have. So it's a rescue dog. It's a, it's a really, beautiful dog. It's a cute dog. I looked at it online. I don't have that dog because I live the life I live. So I'm a hopeless person for you to ask that question of. I, I have, we were just talking earlier about how I tried to take some time off this year and made it two weeks uh, before I quickly put another movie together. <laughs> and I have, you know, I, I have almost no hobbies. I like to go running. That's like my hobby. Um, and I, I just love movies. I mean, I, I truly do. And like, I don't, really want to do anything else and very I'm in a very lucky position where my wife is also a filmmaker so we can commiserate together and also understand why we don't see each other that often because we're both doing something that we love Mm. and that's very lucky I mean I don't know it would be a little bit more challenging if she was in a different profession Mm. but um but luckily we both do the same thing and so our household is very uh has a very narrow focus Mm. No. Yeah, yeah, no. No balance. But it's like, it's like. Don't be balanced. Don't be balanced. Don't be what balanced. A, be obsessed. What a great thing to not be balanced. Yeah. Tweet that. Tweet that out into the world. Don't be balanced. Be obsessed. Yeah. It's wonderful yeah. to be obsessed. Yes, don't you? Um, hi. Question for both of you. Um, important creative collaborator, collaborators on your projects, such as director photography or any, any, any other role that's important to you. Do you have a kind of process? I mean, I certainly try to work with the same people over and over and over again so that you don't have to go through those growing pains. And also, I mean, it just benefits everybody. If you, if you have people you like and that you get along with, there's, it's just going to be a beneficial situation. Now, there is a great value in finding new voices to complement that and to bring new people into that mix. And when I do that, it's odd. I, I work with, I've always worked with different cinematographers. That's like the one area where I've always find someone new. Um, you sort of start with just people whose work you like. And I kind of like to take the work out of the equation. I like to like, I know that if I hire this person, they're going to make a beautiful image. So that's, let's not worry about that. And then it's more about, can I hang out with them? Do we like the same music? Do we like the same movies? Are we going to enjoy going to get dinner together? And that's, the, that's what you look for. I like to work with the same people over and over once I know I can work with them. Um, if I'm doing something... 
how can I put this? I will often, if I'm doing something that I think is going to take something in a different direction, um, I will look for someone who is very talented but has never had to do that thing before. What do you, I'm just going to get you to clarify, what do you mean take? So do say something. if I'm going in a different direction. Uh, if you're departing if I, from if I'm the departing track you've from, been on yeah. with so, previous so work. When yeah. I made my first feature documentary, I specifically wanted to work with a DOP who had never shot a feature documentary because I wanted to be able to direct without question and not to be thrown off my game by someone who felt they had more experience than me at that moment Mm. and might question a really crucial decision because they had done this before. And it really paid pays off because because sometimes if you're at a you know if there's a really intense decision making moment um you need absolute trust and um so I like to work with the person who hasn't done that thing before so they'll trust me (laughs) even though someone else who's done that before would go that is crazy that's because I've had that experience so that's what I've learned that's really smart that's what I've learned (laughs) Yes. This is a question for David. Um, you say you like to work with the same people all the time. Does that include 50 50 women? Like when you say you like to work with the same people who like the same movies or like the same people, does that include also giving opportunities to women cinematographers, women producers, women actors, women crew? 100%. And, you know, my closest collaborator is my production designer, Jade Healy. And so starting there, it's like already her, like I always credit her as my co-director. Like she's like my closest collaborator. And so for a long time, like I didn't think about it as much as I do now, because certainly now like I do culturally, it's important to like look and say like, oh wait, am I making sure that I am giving people opportunities? And, and like I said in my uh, talk yesterday, like are there too many people on my sets that look like me? And that's something I do think about now more than I used to. And it's an important thing to come to that realization. But we also luckily have always surrounded ourselves with really great female collaborators. And collaborators of all, you know, uh, just it's a wide diaspora. And, and so in despite of the fact that I am more conscious of it than I ever have been before and take greater strides to make sure that when we're hiring the rest of the company that comes on board the films to make sure that we're not just... I did this TV show last year, and there was a point where I was like, we're about to hire the sixth person named David. <laughs> like, literally, they're all these guys named David. Let's, let's, not, let's stop that right now. Let's get rid of all the Davids and bring in more people who don't, aren't named David and don't look like they'd be named David. And we did that. And it was, it was important to realize that because it can be easy to fall into that trap. So... The short answer is 100% yes. Oh, actually, I'm so sorry. I see we have 10 seconds We can get something in 10 seconds. And then I'd really like to invite you to thank both of these very open, generous people for speaking so frankly. This session is presented by production company Fish Entertainment. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and Janda. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover was provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Bear.